today we will turn our attention to the fourth chapter of John and verses 27 through 42. And um, as you're finding that, I want to remind you of something that I, I presented to you two weeks ago, and we've had some discussion um, even on Wednesday night about it, and that's, that is um, what I call our the Caledonia Baptist Church Discipleship Pathway. And so I want you to look at this quickly as a kind of an introduction to our sermon in John 4. Um, and it's really a four-step thing related to how we as a church can make disciples. How can we accomplish the goal, the mission that God's put us here to do? And I'm convinced if we will focus on these four things, we will see God do great works uh, in our lives, our homes, and our church, and our community. And so the first one is to turn to Christ, right? If you're in here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, that is what you need to do, to, to give yourself to him, to surrender to him, to turn to Christ. And that's what we want to see people do. The second thing is to join the congregation, obviously, is to join a church and be a, an active member of a church and be an active Sunday morning participant as you are this morning um, because you're able to come and fellowship and worship and, and be equipped through the preaching of the word that you might go out and be the person God's called you to be. The third one is to invest in church community. And the best way I know for us to do that is something I've been promoting for weeks now, and that is our Wednesday night small group meeting back in the fellowship hall at 6.30 Wednesday nights. Someone said, and they're not here today, but someone said Wednesday night, and I may begin this wrong, y'all correct me, but they said they have never grown in the Bible like they have in the last few weeks or months since they've been coming to the small groups on Wednesday nights. And they said it's made that big of a difference in their life. Um, and I'll get that person to share with you maybe one Sunday morning, but... Um, I encourage you to do that. And the fourth thing is to influence your crowd. And I don't want to confuse what that means. What your crowd is, that's the people in your life outside of the church. The people you live with, your extended family, your friends, your coworkers. And part of our job, right, as Christians, part of our goal as Christians is to live in such a way with our words, our attitudes, our actions, that those people might see Christ in us. And that's, that's how we influence or witness to our, our crowd. And so I want to keep those things in front of you because that really is a great path. If, if we are all doing those four things, then we're going to be accomplishing the goal of making disciples. That will happen in, the, in that context. And so as we get back to John chapter 4, we again are talking about this Samaritan woman at the well, and she was certainly a woman who met Jesus and quickly began to influence her crowd for Christ. And that's why I've entitled... Today's sermon, How to Influence Your Crowd for Christ. If you found John 4 and verse 27, say word. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? 
Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto, unto each life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard of him ourselves, and know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. I'm going to give you two main points to help us all be equipped to better influence our crowd for Christ. Number one, notice that we must be changed. There must be a change. And so if you're new with us this morning, you may not know, may not know the context, but last week Jesus was walking and, and traveling, and he stopped at this well, and he's just there to, to you know, find water to, to relax and rest for a moment. This woman walks up, and he strikes up this conversation with her where he basically begins to reveal slowly to her that he is the Christ, the Savior. And at first, of course, she didn't get it, and she started trying to debate him about, you know, worship, and, and then he, he basically told her he knew all about her life, and she was kind of amazed by that. And so it's this whole conversation where Jesus is saying to her, I can bring you eternal satisfaction. You're looking for satisfaction in all these worldly things and relationships, but I can bring you satisfaction. And so that's where we, where we pick up in this text today. And, and as she's talking to him, we see that these, these, um, the disciples show back up. They had been in town buying food, and, and now they show back up, and they look at Jesus, and they think, why is he out here talking to this woman? That was kind of taboo back then. Like, he shouldn't really be talking to her, and she's also a Samaritan, and the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, and so they're like, what is our master doing? And don't you think they did that a lot in those three years of ministry? Jesus often did things, they were like, what is he doing? But he, he did not, he broke the mold in many ways from what religious leaders were in those days. But we know, and what they found out was, he knew what he was doing, right? Jesus Christ knew what he was doing. And if you look at 27, they, it says, yet no man asked him, what are you doing? Basically is what verse 27 says. None of them said, should we challenge him on this? They, they saw what he was doing, they observed it, but they didn't challenge him on the fact that he was speaking to this lady. And so we, we read through these verses, and what stands out to me is that she was here changed. We don't have a recording of her saying a prayer. We don't have a recording of her falling to her knees and asking Jesus to forgive her of her sin. But we do have him presenting himself to her, and we see a change in her life. And the main change is this. You ready? Here's the main change she had. She met Jesus, and she was immediately ready to go tell someone else about him. That's her main change. Uh, I, I remember preaching way back last year in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And you remember that? It says, um, for I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And I described to you all that word power comes from a Greek word that we get the word dynamite from. 
Pretty cool, right? So if I took a stick of dynamite and I lit it in this big wooden pulpit this morning and I walk off, of course, what's going to happen to this pulpit? It's going to change, right? Something's going to happen. And so when Paul wrote and said the power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, what he means is when the gospel comes into a place or to a person, things change. I've used this illustration before, and, you know, um, if I walk out in the highway and get hit by a truck, I'm going to change, right, quickly. Um, how many of you have ever been in a fender bender? Anybody? Fender bender? Yeah, and if you get in a fender bender, well, you, can, you can fix it maybe. Some people are pointing fingers at each other. I don't know why y'all are doing that. But a fender bender you can deal with. How many of you have ever been in a really serious car accident where the thing is totaled? There's a difference, right? There's a difference in a small fender bender bend where you hit the side of the church or... I needed the picture. Where's the picture? Inside church, though. There's a difference in that that you can deal with, and if you go and crash and, and your car is totaled, right? If your car is totaled, people recognize it, don't they? There's a difference. There's a big change. When the power of the gospel comes into someone's life, or in this lady's case, when she met Jesus face to face and began to realize who he really was, that he was the Savior, that he was the Messiah, her life changed. As Paul wrote, she became a new creation, a new creature. And notice in verse 28, it says in verse 28, if you're looking there with me, the woman gathered up all her belongings and took her time to go back to the city. Is that what it says? It even says this in verse 28, she left her pot, her bucket. And in those days, that was a very valuable thing. She would go out there every day to grab that water for different uses. She was so excited. She had experienced such a moment of grace she wanted to go tell someone else. She had drank from the living water, and she wanted other people to come have a taste. And I, as I just meditated on that this week, I thought about Jesus had confronted her sin. If, if you read the earlier verses, Jesus said, hey, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, yeah, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. I mean, he bluntly stepped on her toes, didn't he? He called her out for her, her sinful lifestyle and her, the things that would cause her to be looked at on in society. And yet, he did it in a way that was confront, confrontational, but also with love and grace and mercy. And she felt, even through her sin, she felt that acceptedness, accepted, didn't she, through Christ. She became a witness. I love what J.C. Ryle said. He said, I think it's up here, in the day of her conversion, she became a missionary. In the day of her conversion, she became a missionary. Church, is it part of our responsibility as believers to go out and be a witness for Christ in this world? It is, right? Now, statistics show us that 98% of Christians never once in their life share Christ with someone else, which I think is kind of mind-blowing. I read that statistic this week. It said 98% of Christians never speak the gospel to, a, to an unsaved person kind of wild but yeah shame on us and all of us because we're all guilty of not doing that like we should and I, I, I was watching this or listening to this podcast this week it's called the rise and fall of mars hill some of you may be familiar with it this church that got really big out in seattle washington and ended up collapsing and the pastor was at a conference and this is this pastor's uh been through a lot of stuff and uh um a lot of repentance i guess but anyway he told, I, I listened to it, he, his own words, he told his church members, don't go out and witness to people. You bring them to me, and I'll do the witnessing. And I was like, he was basically saying, y'all are not really equipped 
to go out and share the gospel. I'm gifted. I'm powerful. I can tell people more about Jesus and better about Jesus than you can. And I, I pause the podcast to go back to my sermon notes and say, what, what was he thinking there? What was he thinking? No, I want the opposite. I want you and all of us to be equipped here by our, our sermons and our studies that we might go out and be able to live the Christ-like life and share about Christ with other people. That's what I want. Sometimes parents come to me and they'll say, well, you witness to my child, and of course I'll talk to their child about their salvation, but I all, always want to say first, you witness to them first. I want that parent to share with Christ if they can. And We must be changed, and if we're changed on the inside by Christ, we should be willing to share. If we're going to influence our crowd for Christ, we must be changed by Christ. Earlier in John, we studied about Andrew. As soon as Andrew met Jesus, who did he go bring to Jesus? His brother Peter, right? We also studied that Philip went and told Nathaniel, Hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. And now this woman says, Come and see Christ. Here's another quote I want to give you that, again, you know, I've been reading a lot of J.C. Ryle, but he said, That which the Samaritan woman did here, all true Christians ought to do. The church needs it, and the state of the world demands it. He says, everyone who's received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find words to testify of Christ to others. Where is our faith if we believe that souls around us are perishing and that Christ alone can save them and yet remain silent? Where's our charity if we can see others going down to hell and yet say nothing to them about Christ and salvation? We may well doubt our own love to Christ if our hearts are never moved to speak of him we may well doubt the safety of our own souls if we have no concern about the souls of others this is convicting should be for most christians because every one of us in this room who's a christian has something we're passionate about right you can't talk to me very long without me bringing up some type of sports right basketball especially right that i'm passionate about some of you are passionate about you know your college football team, right? And you'll, you'll talk about it any time. And, and there's things that we all have things that we're passionate about. Every Sunday when we're done, me and Drew will talk about basketball until Taylor makes him leave. He has to come and grab him and drag him out. We enjoy talking about things we are passionate about. As a Christian, are we passionate about Christ? Should he be something we talk about? I would argue, of course, he should be. It worked to her, her going back to town, telling people, come and see. Look at verse 30. It says, people began to leave the town, they leave the city, and go to Jesus. How are you going to influence your crowd for Christ? First, you must be changed by Christ. If you're going to make disciples, you must be a disciple. Let's move to number two. The second main way that we can um, influence our crowd for Christ is that we must be focused. We must be focused on it. And I see this. In verses 31 through 34, notice firstly that we need to be focused on the purpose, a, a purpose that God's given us. And in these verses, the disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, you need to eat. Like, we've gone, we've gone to town, we've bought the food, we've brought it back to you. you you're, you're tired, you're hungry, you're thirsty, because we know Jesus was human. And Jesus is like, okay, I know. And they're like, you need to eat food. And then Jesus gives them this teaching. In verse 32, he says, I have food that you don't even know about. I have food that you don't even know about. And they're like, well, someone else bringing food while we were gone? Did someone sneak some food to Jesus? And then Jesus says in verse 34, my food 
is to do the Father's will and to accomplish His purpose. The Bible speaks about food a lot, doesn't it? If you read through it, it really does. What about the wilderness journey in the Old Testament? The people are hungry. What does God send from heaven for them? Sends manna, sends them quail, sends them birds, bird and, and bread, and brings water from a rock. God provided for them. Um, how about the New Testament? How about Jesus saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? I found one that you may not be familiar with, Job 23, where Job said, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of, of food. You think the Bible talks about food a lot because it's obviously a necessity for, for us. But for most of us, I would say food is not just a necessity, it's a, a joy, right? You know people who are joyous when they eat. I've got friends who you go to eat with them, and they're just smiling the whole time. They're so happy to be there eating. I'm like, were you starving before this, or what's going on? I know people, and I, I, I have a few people in my, my, my mind right now, they're so joyous when they eat. I'm like, man, you really love this. But we all do, don't we? Did I tell you the story about the time, I think I did, I did a 30-hour famine with a church group years ago. So 30 hours of no eating, and we did drink, drink water, and the, it was the first time I'd ever done it for that long, a fast for that long. And it was a whole youth group situation, so we all stayed in these houses and, and kept each other accountable, and we did Bible study and prayer and, and things like that. And so at the end of it, it ended on Sunday morning. We had a sermon like this, and then we, we had food in the fellowship hall to end our fast. And I was like, this is going to be good. And so we go out there. They grilled, some of the men had grilled burgers, which they were grilling during church. So during the sermon, we're in there like, dude, this, this, this hurts. We're smelling the burgers while, they're while the guy was preaching. And so we go in there. We eat the burger. I remember buying that burger, and it was just amazing. I was like, this is so good. I mean, it's so good. And we're all just like patting each other on the back. You know, this is amazing. The food is, thank, thank, we're thank, very thankful to God for the food. Then they broke out this big chocolate cake. And I don't even like cake that much, to be honest with you. I'm more of a pie, cobbler type person. But they put a big piece of chocolate cake in front of me with that chocolate. And I love chocolate, chocolate icing. And I took my fork, and I dug into the cake, and I put it in my mouth. And I'm not making this up. My wife's not in here, but she could testify. A tear came to my eye. And I don't even cry that much. A tear, a tear started coming down my face. I was so happy be eating food do we like food too much most of us probably do so jesus uses this illustration or example of food right and he says i've got food you don't even know about they're like what, what food you, what's he talking about is this special is this keto diet what's he talking about what kind of food is this and he says my food is to do the will of god it's to Jesus is saying to them, I have a source greater than the bread you just brought me. I have a strength greater than the, the strength provided by food. And that strength is my Father's will. And we see in Christ here, in his words, the necessity of us to be focused on a purpose in life. We know what Christ's purpose was. It was to glorify his Father Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is about to go to the cross, about to be arrested, and he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And we see in that his purpose was to go to the cross, to die for sinners, and to just reveal truth all along the way. 
Jesus' mission was to offer truth to even people like the Samaritan woman, who many people would say, she don't deserve it. Jesus said, no, I'm taking truth to those types of people. Then he says there, not only to do the will, in verse 34, of him that sent me, but to finish his work. In John 19, verse 30, Jesus is on the cross, and he says three words, finish it for me, it is finished. Paid in full, the debt that we owe God because of our sin that we could never repay, no matter how good we are, no matter how many times we go to church, no matter how much money we give, no matter how many good deeds we do, we could never pay the sin debt we owe. We sang a moment ago, drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Jesus was energized or motivated by his purpose. And though the world tried to throw things at him, he never got off course. Here's my application. What is our purpose? Why are we here? Did God put us here just to get older, to have a family, and retire? Is that only, the only reason we're here? Or did God put every one of us here for a reason? To glorify Him, to serve Him in whatever way He gifts us to do? Yes, it is our goal, Isaiah 43, 7, to glorify the Lord. It is our goal, Matthew 5, 16, to let our good works shine. It is our goal, according to the great commandment, to love God and love people. It is our goal, according to the great commission, to make disciples. It is our goal, according to 1 Peter 2, 9, to declare light into darkness. It is our goal, according to Philippians 2, 10, to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Are we focused on our purpose? If a church will get behind a singular purpose, we can accomplish great things for Christ. If this church will pray and seek the Lord in his word and work together, we will see great things happen because of a focus on a purpose. A second thing to focus on here is focus on people. We, of course, Jesus did that. And in verse 35, I think Jesus looks up and he sees this field out there and he gives them this saying. It was some type of saying they would do back then about the harvest. And verse 35, he says something like, you know, there's four months and then the harvest you know, but he says, look, the harvest is ready now. And the, the idea is that when you sow a seed, right, you wait later for the harvest, right? There's a time to sow and a time to reap. And so he says, no, now when it comes to people, we're going to reap now. The, the, the time is now. The time is now to go and see that there are people out in this world that need me, Jesus says, and it's time for us to go and tell them the truth. It's time for us to present to them the living water. There are people out there, we saw last week, who are, God has ready to enter his fold, and God is waiting to use the church to bring them into his fold. Can you remember the last time you tried to tell someone anything about Christ or the Bible or the Lord? Can you remember a time when you've done that? As Christians, we should, we should try to do that, of course. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy because we get uncomfortable or we don't want to make somebody else feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel like we're pushing our views on somebody, right? Um, I once applied for a job as a teacher. This has been 10 years ago, maybe, 8 or 10 years ago, at a teacher in a school. And um, the superintendent, I was told, did not hire me and said, I'm afraid he will preach too much about Jesus in the classroom. And I was like, 
I might have. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't have. I mean, I would have done my job right, and you know, but I took it as a compliment. <laughs> you know, I didn't get the job, but I took it as a compliment that wow, he thinks that I'm going to preach about Christ that much. Because to be honest, I, I wouldn't have done that. I'd have just been myself. But but it's not easy to preach Christ. But I will say this: in our day and time, right now, people in our world, in our our coworkers. Our neighbors, our extended family, people we know in our crowd, many of, the, many of them need hope, right? Things are tough right now for a lot of people. And when people need hope, why not point them to the greatest hope there is, which is a relationship with Christ? Richard Baxter said this, and um, I heard this quote years ago. I haven't used it in a long time. But he said, I preached, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. He had a great perspective, didn't he, on what it meant to share Christ with others who need, who need him. In verses 36 through 38, if you'll look there quickly, he talks about um, that the, in verse 36 that the work will be rewarded. I believe that as we serve Christ, we don't do it for rewards, but God blesses in certain ways and rewards. And he, he says there that they'll gather fruit for eternal life. And the idea is that when we focus on the purpose and on reaching people for Christ, that's an eternal thing that lasts forever. And he says there that they, are, they rejoice together. We can rejoice together as we serve him. We must see souls as supremely valuable. Again, Ryle said, one single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world. Do we have a focus on our purpose? Do we have a focus on people? Thirdly, and finally, a focus on Christ. So what happened in this story? Jesus meets this woman. She goes back to town. She says, you are going to come see this guy? Is he not the Christ? And they go, and verse thirty. Nine says, many believed, many believed by her witness, by her testimony. She didn't debate them on theology. She didn't debate them on worship. She said, he told me all that I ever did. He knows me and my deepest issues and sins. Come and see this man. They come out in verse 40. They beg Jesus to stay and Jesus staying is significant because most Jews would avoid the Samaritans altogether. And Jesus says, no, I'll stay for a couple of days and share with you the truth. Verse 41 says, many more believed because of his word. And in verse 42, they say, they say to the woman, hey, not only do we believe, but we've heard it from him. And we truly understand that this Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. They're saying he, he even come to save us. True or false? There is one way to be saved. True or false? True. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know the Lord, the only way to be saved is through the Savior of the world that verse 42 talks about. But oftentimes, watch this. The way to the way is different. Some of you were saved because you had a mother or father who you saw live the Christian life and maybe even witness to you and tell you about Jesus. For some of us, it might have been a friend 
For me, it was a friend, a friend in school and then a grandmother who helped point me toward Christ. For some of you, it's a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. For some of you, you might have just been reading your Bible at some point in your life and saw the truth. I think it was Martin Luther who was out riding on a horseback and reading Romans and came to Christ. The way to the way is, can be different. And so, understand that we might be the way to the way. That we can just simply say to someone, hey, can I tell you what God has done in my life? Hey, watch this. This week you can say this to somebody. Hey, this Sunday is Easter. Do you know what that's all about? And they might say, oh, I, I, you know, things happen. You can say, well, here's what it's about. Jesus Christ died and rose again to save people like us. And you can just say it in your own words, but you can point them to Christ. We must realize that there's only one way, but he is, but we might be the way to the way for some people. Do we believe sin is real? Do we believe sin is real? Do we believe sin separates people from God? Do we believe there is a heaven for believers? Do we believe there is a hell for unbelievers? Do we believe the only way to have your sin forgiven is to turn to Christ? Yes, 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 right? If we believe all these things, then we ought to be like the Samaritan woman, drop our buckets, and run to our crowd, run to people in our lives who need to hear the truth. We will influence our crowd for Christ when Christ is our most valued possession. I want to show you um, Philippians 1.21. Some of you know this verse, and I have it up there on the slide, and it's going to have a blank with it. But don't finish it if you know it. But if you were to actually put something in that blank for you, what would it be? What's the thing you, that you live for? For some people, that blank might say this. It might say, for to me, to live is health. Like my health is the main thing I'm focused on more than anything else. And that's a good thing, but is that, should that be the main thing? For some, it's family. and We all love our family, right? I hear people say, I, I really love my, I love my kids. You understand? Like, no, we all love our kids. <laughs> we love our kids. I love my family. You just don't get it. No, we all love our family. Family. Success. Popularity. Wealth. Status. What would go in that blank for you? Comfort. Entertainment. Happiness. Well, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, he said, for me, to live is what? Christ. And then he said, to die is gain. If we're going to be like this Samaritan woman at the well who influences our crowd for Christ, we must have Christ as our most valued possession. He must possess us and the fact that he's our Savior. And we must understand that he is a valuable, valuable treasure. There's a story that Jesus told that I mention all the time, that a man was walking in a field, and he stumbled upon a treasure, and he was like, wow, this is the most amazing treasure I've ever found. And so he runs back, he sells all that he has, he takes the money, and he buys the field so that he can have that treasure. Jesus must be our greatest treasure. Do you love him? Do you treasure him? Do you value Christ? 
Many people today value religion or value the social experiment of church, but do you value a relationship with Jesus? I pray and hope that you do. Let's review these last. Let's review these points, and then uh, uh, we'll be done. But how do I how do I make a how do I influence my crowd for Christ? First, we must be changed. Only by Christ can we be changed. Secondly, we must be focused, focused on our purpose, focused on other people, and focused on on Christ. I pray that you would consider these thoughts and be an influence, be a Christ-like influence with your words, attitudes, and actions on the people around you. Let's pray.